1: Good evening, and welcome to the Business of Giving. I'm Denver Frederick, and thanks for being here tonight. Next, April 22nd, will mark the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. And tonight, we'll discuss what's been achieved since it was started back in 1970, and what's in store for the 50th, with Kathleen Rogers, the president and CEO of of the Earth Day network. She says the arts will be a big part of next year's commemoration.
2: We're in a partnership with Smithsonian, all of their 17 museums and zoos will be doing a major Earth Day activity, but we also have hundreds of other museums either signed up or about to be signed up to do exhibit. We have people, orchestras that are playing 24 hours Around Earth Day from all over the world. Commissioning new works, poets that are writing poetry, uh, ballets that will be commissioned.
1: And then I will be joined by Anne Lynham Goodard, the president and CEO of Child Fund International. She'll tell us how they approach their work.
3: So you can't just solve the problem of one child. You have to look at their greater um, ecosystem that they live in because it's not just the deprivation. It's the exclusion and vulnerability that's often influenced by powers outside of them.
1: But first the business of giving news digest for Sunday, October 13th. Data from microsatellites can be used to detect and double the impact of sustainable interventions in agriculture at large scales, according to a new study led by the University of Michigan. Former tackle football players with CTE, the degenerative brain disease linked to repeated head hits, double their risk of developing the worst forms of disease for each 5.3 years they played, according to a new study. Many in the museum world are worried that increasing scrutiny of the sources of major donors' wealth and the attendant pressure on institutions to decline or return gifts may have a chilling effect on cultural philanthropy, the New York Times reports. Feeling positive about one's identity is critical to a child's healthy development and life outcomes, yet parents and educators rarely discuss issues of identity with children, a study commissioned by the Sesame Workshop finds. When New York City started restricting traffic on Manhattan's 14th Street in response to a now-defunct plan to shut down the L train, buses started traveling so fast that drivers had to purposely slow down. And finally, I was over at the Lasker Medical Awards Luncheon recently and got to speak with one of the winners. I am at the Pierre Hotel at the Lasker Awards Luncheon, and I have the pleasure of being with one of the winners today, Dr. Dennis Slayman of UCLA who shares the prestigious 2019 Lasker-DeBakey Clinical Medical Research Award. Congratulations, Dr. Slayman. Thank you. You have won this for the invention of Herceptin.
4: What is Herceptin? What does it do? So Herceptin is an antibody that is directed against a protein that's made in very aggressive breast cancers, uh, and it's for a subtype of breast cancer, about 20% of breast cancers that carry this alteration. And it is not chemotherapy, uh, it's not radiation, but it's a uh, an antibody that really doesn't have any major side effects, but actually attacks the tumor cells specifically. And it's had remarkable results and made a huge impact on on HER2 positive breast cancers.
1: How many women have been treated with Herceptin?
4: So the latest numbers are just under three million globally. So it's about 20% of breast cancers that occur each year There are about 1.6 million new cases Mm -hmm. each year globally, but not all patients have access to it, but certainly uh, increasing numbers throughout the world do. And how has it changed these women's fortunes who have been treated with it? Well, the previous best available treatments that we had before Herceptin, um, generally these women had recurrences or succumbed to their disease within three to five years. Since the... Uh, uh, Introduction of Herceptin in the post-Herceptin era. When we treat patients in the early stage, as you heard today, we can expect that more than 90% will be disease-free at three to four years. And as we track out further, we're seeing that that's holding up to close to that same number going further. Wow. Um, Has Herceptin had any impact
1: beyond breast cancer?
4: It does uh, have impact beyond breast cancer. In the sense that other tumors where the HER2 gene is also altered, uh, the drug works very much the same way. And those other tumors are gastric cancer. Mm -hmm. About 18% of gastric cancers have it. And a very small number of endometrial and ovarian cancer. So wherever uh, the tumor is tested and it's found to be HER2 positive, the drug can be effective. Mm -hmm. And finally, Dr. Slayman,
1: what does it mean to you and the two scientists who share this award with you to win the Lasker Award?
4: It's enormously gratifying. It's gratifying from the standpoint that we worked on something uh, that we thought might have the impact um, that it now has, and to see that come to fruition is... uh, as good as any award that we can receive, and I think we are all grateful for the recognition that we received from the Alaska Foundation. Well, congratulations, and thanks again, Dr. Uh, Slayman.
1: Thank you. I'll be back with Kathleen Rogers of the Earth Day Network right
5: after this. Recruit the best talent. Explore the untapped pool of 24 million productive Americans with disabilities. The National Organization on Disability is the leading partner to help companies succeed in disability employment. Learn more at nod.org. If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from The Business of Giving, you can find them at denverfrederick.wordpress.com. And now back to the show on AM 970, The Answer.
6: Can help you remember how
1: to April 22nd of next year will mark the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. Started in 1970, it predates the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency. Much has occurred over those 50 years, but next year's milestone is critical as organizers look to see that the environment and climate become a higher priority with citizens across the world, particularly when it comes time to vote. And here with us this evening is the leader of all those organizers, Kathleen Rogers, the president and CEO of the Earth Day Network. Good evening, Kathleen, and welcome to the Business of Giving.
2: Good evening. Thank you for having me.
1: So take us back 50 years, if you would. Uh, How did Earth Day get started and who was behind it?
2: So it's a relatively long story. Uh, Gaylord Nelson, who was a freshman senator from Wisconsin, uh, had long been interested in the environment. Dating back to 1963, he actually went on a tour with President Kennedy to show him some of the desecration of public lands and some other issues. And then as we move towards 1970, where Mm -hmm. there was a huge amount of unrest around the Vietnam War, civil rights movement, And students became extremely active in the environment, and Gaylord came up with an idea to hold an environmental teach-in around campuses, and that had been done for a few years previously but had really taken off as a way for students to become engaged with each other. And he hired a young guy named Dennis Hayes who took that teach-in concept, turned it into Earth Day, And the rest is uh, a legend. He brought 20 million people out into the streets, which was over 10 percent of the U.S. population. And it scared a lot of people, including the president at the time, who was relatively paranoid, as we know, Richard Nixon, who then responded in a way, I think quite admirably, and created the EPA soon after Earth Day. Uh, If you listen to the tapes of the great newscasters of the day, including Walter Cronkite, and it's on our website if you want to listen to it, it's almost reverential. That 20 million people on the streets represents the largest civic engagement day in human history mm. It's never been repeated of course we hope to in 2020 <laughs> yes for sure uh, but and then some it is <laughs> and so it's it was quite extraordinary what happened was he created the EPA in three months and because there was such a thing as bipartisan, anything in our Congress. We went through what can only be described as almost a 10-year honeymoon where Republicans and Democrats, independents of the time, got together and passed some of the most um, aggressive, broad environmental legislation in the world. Mm -hmm. In fact, not matched by anywhere in the world. Many of our laws that we created were exported then to other countries. And they included, of course, the Endangered Species Act, Uh, Clean Air Act and some of the other great environmental laws and other environmental laws that were on the books, clean water, were dramatically improved. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing about Earth Day that is really important to remember is that Earth Day is the bright line that was crossed that day, was the difference between the old environmental movement, which was about conservation and biodiversity, maybe so you could shoot them, national parks, and it became about human health and development because 150 years of industrial development had left an incredible legacy. And so that history of changing from conservation and biodiversity, all critically important issues, but really engaging people in their health really struck a chord. So it wasn't just students out there. It was moms, pops, kids, religious leaders, and suits. More Mm -hmm. important, it was middle class working bloke uh, from all over the United States. New York City was... Shut down, and mm-hmm. the photos are remarkable. It's everybody's wearing a suit, so it was a broad cross section, and it was aided in the most amazing way by perfect weather all the way across <laughs> the United States. <laughs>
6: well,
1: that's great.
2: April showers and all of that just didn't happen that
1: yeah. day. Yeah, why? Why is it April twenty second? Any significance to that?
2: Well, I think they were looking for. Um, a day during the week. I think it was a Tuesday in 1970. Okay. And they were looking for a day during the week be- because it was very much conceived of as a teach-in. Mm-hmm. It was sort of at the end of school classes, but before exams. And so they specifically picked that to engage students before they were caught up in the nightmare of final exams. And it actually worked really well. Yeah, it um, does. So it continues. Of course, we never changed the date. Oh. Um, I arrived at Earth Day 16 years ago. And so... Um, it, it remains a critical day. In In 2020, it will be on a Wednesday. Mm-hmm. So we've got that same sort of dynamic well, that's
1: going. That's cool. That's cool. And it's also, I think, probably uh, after Passover and Easter. So you yeah, don't have a religious holiday, that, those, too.
2: Those are movable feasts.
1: Yeah, yeah. So
2: we've had a couple of Earth Days that were either uh, on or around Passover. Oh, yeah. Uh, the luck of the calendar. And so we, of course, checked in uh, a few many years ago um, to see when the 50th anniversary fell. And thankfully, we're not involved in Super.
1: Well, the Earth Day Network is the organization that came out of that first Earth Day. What is your charge and mission?
2: Well, it's really interesting. Before I got there, it had a very different mission. It went global in 1990, way before my time. And I came to the organization with a an explicit direct ask of the board of directors, including Dennis Hayes and Gaylord, uh, which is that I was deeply concerned about the environmental movement when I had been at previous environmental organizations I had been involved in sort of a census of the environmental movement and who and what we are. And it was largely old and very, almost 100% white. And so when I went to Earth Day, I went to the board and said, I'll take this job. Of course, I really wanted it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll take this job. Find your poker. <laughs> if Poker face, exactly. If you'll change the mission to the following, which is to diversify, educate, and activate the environmental movement worldwide. And that's what we do. Mm-hmm. We used Uh, We use and have used Earth Day as a major entry point into the environmental movement. It's a great stepping stone, uh, but we've worked year-round since the late 80s on issues such as, well, now plastics, biodiversity, climate and environmental education, which is near and dear to the mission of Earth Day, and a few other issues. So we're both year-round, but we spend a huge amount of time looking for groups, seeking organizations Um, that will be engaged, and we work with everything from corporations to evangelicals to mayors and local elected officials, um, just about every segment, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, you name it, we're there. The Red Cross, all of these groups are critically important, and increasingly, we're finding it easier and easier to draw them in, even groups that aren't involved in the environment directly, to draw them into this conversation because of climate change. Everybody's concerned. Everybody's on board give or take a few people. And so it's it's become easier and easier to make the – um to paint a picture of taking part in Earth Day and then Earth Day every day, another expression we created, and moving down that trajectory of actual activism. Mm-hmm. Those things are different. Volunteerism is awesome. But if we can move them away from the cleanups, planting trees, into voting – and working with their uh, local electeds, all the better.
1: Yeah, policy is everything. In addition to some of that legislation you spoke about in the 1970s, what are some of the notable successes of the Earth Day movement?
2: Well, I think, again, if you have now a billion people participating well, that's in That's a Earth pretty Day. good success, yeah. And our goal is not just to have them do Earth Day, but to pass them on into other environmental groups or other social uh, social groups. So it's, it's not our goal to have them step it up, and step away. Mm -hmm. So we're a big part of our accomplishment has been feeding them into the broader environmental movement. As I said, it's not just the 20 or so groups with budgets over $100 million that we're interested in. Our MO, our focus, is community building. So all of those people that participate in Earth Day are asked to join local community groups, to join medium-sized groups, because that's really where the action is. Yeah. I've always
1: been curious about this, but as you know, historically, elections do not turn on environmental issues, and if you look at all the polls, climate and environment are really near the top. However, it doesn't translate when people step into the, uh, in the into the voters' booth.
6: What's
1: a, what's a reason for that?
2: So let's distinguish between voting for a candidate, yeah, who's strong on climate, and voting for initiatives. Mm-hmm. Initiatives. So if you have a, a green bond initiative, a parks initiative. They pass like that because people see the benefit to themselves. So in a sense, they're, they are voting for the environment all the time in states with initiatives or where they have to vote on specific issues. When it comes to picking your local candidate or your um, national candidate, and that includes everybody in between, you're right. It's There are immediate concerns that we all have, myself included, around education, jobs, now immigration. And, and so guns. there are and guns <laughs> and there are all these issues right left and center that take that long-term thing even if it's it's equal i can tell you the people of flint michigan and some of the other places that have experienced extraordinary environmental damage and also a complete lack of both responsibility and caring by mm-hmm. local officials those guys aren't there anymore so but on the other hand i just saw an interview with people from sandy and it was extraordinary they interviewed a bunch of people from staten island some other places all of whom were conservative people. And they all rejected the idea that Sandy was part of a greater pattern of climate events. So even if it happens to you personally, Mm. you might not believe it or you might want to, for a bunch of reasons, human psychology, anxiety, whatever it is, to just move away from the idea that you really matter to the next person who's representing you. And so we're finding it – so in other words, if – we're expecting everyone in the world to experience climate change in order to change their minds. We might not be that far off, but on the other hand, even when they do, they're not voting. So, I think it looks they people look at the candidates overall, mm-hmm. as you know, 80, 90% of the people make up their mind long before the debates start, long <laughs> before the primaries. And so you're dealing with a sl- small segment of society that are good wafflers. I I mean, they're good. They're people that actually haven't made up their mind. They're listening to 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 the arguments. Yeah, Yeah, they're listening to the arguments. And those are the people that really matter. The second point, so you have a small group of people that really matter Mm -hmm. in a small number of states. I'm not saying everybody doesn't matter, but I'm saying the politically active states and all the money is pouring in to getting that, let's call it a handful of voters to change, but skipping who's voting more important, who's not voting. Mm. And so the other side of that coin is not just targeting uh, undecided voters. It's getting people out to vote. We've had two major years of a very disruptive president, for better or worse, very disruptive. And so people are not unaware of the changes that have been promoted over the last couple of years. You would think the 2018 voting would be astronomically high. And for a couple of demographics, it was higher than normal. But for other groups, youth, other people, it picked up a little, but less than – just le- a little bit less than 30 percent of youth, broadly defined – it's actually a huge group of people uh, – voted, Yeah, even in a very politically active year. So we all, depend- regardless of where you're coming from, have a huge job to turn out people.
1: Well, speaking of that disruptive president, he pulled the United States out of the Paris Climate Accord, which I believe was signed on Earth Day back in 2016 – what has been the impact of that, and are you seeing other nations following down the same path?
2: That's a really good question. So technically, he hasn't withdrawn. Right, he it said takes he's years. Going to withdraw. Right. it takes a year yep. and plus, plus, and he has mm-hmm. to fill out a bunch of forms. Yep. So we're waiting to see if they actually fill out those forms. Um, I think you're right that um, it has dramatically influenced the conversation. There are a bunch of things that happen. It's not just political leaders. It's also what I call certainty in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. If you have a president or leaders generally that are gung-ho, let's say cars in the 1800s or 1900s, they're going to put a ton of emphasis on those technologies and create a pathway and media strategy and everything to get people to adopt new technologies, seatbelts, whatever it is, people are driven not just by the availability of cool technologies and by benefits to their pocketbook, but also by what governments are doing to promote modern life and exchange from the old way to the new way. The green technology will dwarf Regular technology. What's going on in energy is so big compared to computers, cell phones. That this is a bonanza for whoever gets it together globally. Right. So, You're a
1: big fan of the industrial revolution, I know, and you uh, see parallels. I guess you have family history with that. Of
2: family history, <laughs> and I also have done a ton of research. I'll, can I tell you a quick story about? Please Stude, do. Studebaker. Remember Studebaker. Nice. Yes. Okay. So I was doing a bunch of research because I can't stop on this topic, and I found the minutes of a Studebaker meeting, a board of directors meeting, but. The head of Studebaker Company, whose name was Studebaker, mm-hmm. and a bunch of other people, called together all of the horse and buggy makers in the late 1800s. Studebaker made horse and buggies, and they called them all together and said, "In the minutes of this meeting, um, you know, we really think we need to move in the direction of cars." And the rest of the the majority of the rest of the buggy makers were, "Nah, mm-hmm. let's not worry about it." And so they walked away. These were giants in their industries. It wasn't just Studebaker. So Studebaker, at the end of the meeting, voted to move forward with cars and uh, buggies in parallel, but put more into into cars. And the rest of them were history over a very short period of time. It's those companies that are looking down the road and saying, you know, it's inevitable. The problem is whether you're talking about plastics or you're talking about energy efficiency, it's everybody's interest in the corporate community, for the most part, to drag their feet to keep the status quo. And what's happening with this administration and with other parts of the world is they're allowing them to do so. They're not showing that we're headed in this direction, get on board, make it happen. I mean, I can't tell you stories about my relatives from Iowa who talked about how insane it seemed to them when people from the county came to call, rural Iowa, uh, let's bring your toilets inside and do plumbing. Let's Mm. bring that outhouse inside. And their reaction was, I remember my great, my grandmother telling me this, was, what an insanely stupid idea. Yeah. You know, I mean, so how's it going to work? Somewhat disgusting, to tell so you disgusting. the truth. Yeah. And so, nonetheless, the county people came and said, we're putting in pipes and we're putting in central systems. And we can't have this polluting the groundwater, et cetera, et cetera. But they actually needed some convincing. That's the role of government, to yeah. figure out the technologies, make it cool, make it interesting. I'll give you one last one. The seatbelt industry – I mean, the car industry – Fought seatbelts like there's no tomorrow. Mm -hmm. The car industry was adamantly opposed to seatbelts. They spent the equivalent 2019 dollars of millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars fighting seatbelts. Now what do they do? They sell safety. It's just this happens. It's human nature. It's the same thing all the time, repeating itself over and over and over again. People like the status quo they don't want change. Doesn't matter if they're Trump voters or anybody else. You have to move them, enlighten them, energize them, make them optimistic. And that's the role of Earth Day Mm -hmm. government leaders and people in my community.
1: Wasn't it Henry Ford who said that if you polled the public, what they would have wanted was not a car, but faster horses? Exactly.
2: Same thing Studebaker said.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's stick with companies. Um, Who are some of your partners?
2: Well, we're very cautious about uh, corporations that we work with. Yeah. Um, And so some groups, some companies we work with on substantive issues. In other words, advising them on what they should be doing to improve the record. Now, truthfully, they don't need me. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't need the environmental community. Sometimes they just need, instead of technology information, or they need ideas on how to sell it to the people that buy their products or invest in them or whatever the role of it is. And so that's a critical role that... Everybody needs to play, but we are really concerned about companies and focused on companies that will make commitments, that will take it, give us some additionality. Mm-hmm. So if a company like, Pickett, Apple, says well, we're going to go 80% renewable energy, our goal is to make it 100% renewable energy. In fact, that's the trajectory of a lot of big t- tech companies, but not all are on. And so we're using the 50th anniversary as a stage, a platform, to get companies To recognize that we need to stop screwing around, we need additionality, we need broader, better commitments, and then the rest of us, not just the environmental community, the evangelicals, uh, the Boy Scouts, everybody will get behind them. And that's the role of consumer groups, the role of the environmental community, is put our money on the companies that are going to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Well,
1: let's talk about the 50th anniversary in 2020. And one of the things you've done, and I'm sure a lot of these things are in development at the moment, but you have wonderful partnerships with the arts Tell us the role they've played traditionally in Earth Day and maybe some of the things that we can look forward to come next April.
2: Well, I think the important thing about the arts, if you want to change culture, you have to use culture. Yeah. And I've operated under that for a long time. And so we really Touch is a different
1: part of the brain.
2: It's a different part of the brain. Yeah. But it also influences culture. We all know that from watching the insane TV shows that we watch. <laughs> I mean, really, uh, that, that we're influenced by this. Now, maybe it doesn't change what car I'm going to buy or if I'm going to walk to work as opposed to- drive one but they're very influential so the arts for the earth campaign is focused on bringing everybody that's everything from ballet to museums to architects artists poets you name it into this move as cartoonists a couple of years ago we were through dennis hayes who's Mm -hmm. the chair of the board he was able to get four or five hundred cartoonists worldwide to create cartoons Um, all around the same time, related to Earth Day or the environment during the month of April. It was really awesome. I mean, people really responded. But we're taking this to a much higher, much more intense level. Some of the stuff we're doing is kind of secret, and (laughs) some of the things are really obvious. We're in a partnership with Smithsonian. All of their 17 museums and zoos will be doing a major Earth Day activity, but we also have hundreds of other museums either signed up or about to be signed up to do exhibit. We have people, orchestras that are playing 24 hours around Earth Day from all over the world, commissioning new works, poets that are writing poetry, uh, ballets that'll be commissioned. It's a long list of artists Um, that are getting engaged and super excited about what we're doing.
1: Another thing you're doing is the Earth Science 2020 Challenge. This has to do with citizen scientists. Tell us how that's going to work.
2: Yeah. So I think the thing I said at the beginning, which was that Earth Day is that bright line that was crossed that um, where science drove Earth Day, right? Yes, you had the Vietnam War. Yes, you had all these social movements. But you had science. You had hardcore science about what was going wrong with industrial pollution, and they were everything from birth defects to rivers on fire, uh, lung diseases, you name it. They were growing, growing evidence. Of course, Rachel Carson preceded mm-hmm. all of this with her DDT story, uh, which was very real and impacting people. Lead and gasoline was becoming an issue. And so um, so that's our science history. And if you look at any of the historical references and a lot of the books about Earth Day, they're all talking about the scientists drove this. And I firmly believe that's true, although I wasn't there. And so... We looked at that a couple of years ago, and on Earth Day two years ago, I think, yes, we did March for Science. Mm -hmm. And March for Science was dedicated to convincing people around the world that they should be super interested in both, they had to believe in science, they had to support science, um, and they had to really care about the outcomes from a science perspective. And so, increasingly it became clear to us, even before March for Science, that what we needed to do is go back to our roots. So we went to a bunch of groups, and honestly, this was developed on the back of an envelope in a restaurant in Delhi with the <laughs> State Department, and we had um, a discussion about, less, yes, there are 20, 30, 40, maybe more a million scientists operating in the environmental field, but what they needed more than anything was citizens to do some of that work for them. They can't be everywhere, they don't have all the money, And obviously the world has long relied on citizen scientists to um, support what, you know, paid professionals are doing. So we enlisted a bunch of groups, the Wilson Center, State Department, Mm -hmm. European Space Agency, NASA, NOAA, Smithsonian. They're all helping in different ways. UNEP, UN Environment Program, now UN Environment. And we have a giant list. It's literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of groups. And what we're going to do is... Build the largest citizen science database in the world. It'll be all open data, and it will involve both aggra- aggregating sit- existing citizen science from around the world mm-hmm. in air, plastics, water, a bunch of things, a bunch of different areas aggregating what's out there because none of these people talk to each other they're all in silos some of their citizen science is in excel, I know. excel spreadsheets mm-hmm. it's completely crazy so we've been we've spent the last couple of years with super great citizen scientists great woman from Ann Bowser from Wilson Center Lana van Dyke from state Building relationships with citizen science groups. and So the first step is to aggregate everybody's citizen science. We have to put it through AI in order for those Excel spreadsheets to talk to more sophisticated Mm -hmm. things. Layer it all up. Put it through AI again. And then we're developing apps, applications, that will allow ordinary citizens to get engaged. We hope to have about 50 million people download these apps over the course of four, five, six months and take photos of plastics, pollinators, air pollution, water pollution, and upload this data. They're being developed in conjunction with lots of scientists and some big tech companies to help us develop these really great apps, take a picture of plastics under certain circumstances. It'll give you a ton of data. And so all of those apps will be uploaded with the same existing citizen science into one giant platform It's being developed by Esri, which is a giant mm-hmm. company that does mapping. They're awesome, and they've given a huge amount of this to free for free. Some of it's being hosted on Amazon, and we're very grateful to them for all the work they've put into this and money. And lots of other companies, big tech companies, are going to be promoting it. So we're super hoping that um, by the end of May or June we'll have a billion data points. It'll soon, probably the end of 2020, I'm hoping, pass away from Earth Day Network into some giant consortium of citizen science groups Mm -hmm. because we're there to promote it. Um, push it along. As you said, the it. front
1: of the funnel, just like people getting yeah, involved in the environmental movement. Exactly. Yeah. Use
2: it. but our, So let me tell you one last thing, which is really awesome. When you upload your app, uh, you download your app, you take the picture, you upload the photo, you're going to get a pop-up. Mm-hmm. And it's going to tell you, click here to send a letter to, depending on the country, let's say Tanzania, click here to send a letter to um, your government uh, to tell them to do something about single-use plastics. Let's say they use the plastic salad. Call to action. Yeah. yeah. So if we can get another 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 million actions out of people, directing them in their own language to their own countries, it'll really help, I think, build the environmental movement because you connect science with action and then civic engagement. Yeah. And so that's the trajectory. It's been a couple years in the making. Uh, we're all ripping our hairs out, hair out trying to get this going. Yeah, but it's very we're, exciting. We're down to the app development phase, and it's moving along really well.
1: Yeah, you know, I had the pleasure of uh, working at the Statue of Liberty Ellis Island Foundation, oh, and there wow. is something about when people are part of something. You know, when they gave their pennies at school or whatever, they feel that they are, they are an owner. Exactly. So aside from all the practical information that's going to come and help the science community and the environmental community, I feel like I'm part of the 50th having done that. That is absolutely great. Tell us, um, what are the keys to building a movement, and what do you know now that you wish you knew 16 years ago about building a movement when you started?
2: Well, um, I come from a big group uh, that, you know, sort of a command and control. They all are, um, and that's my background. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I... Went through an evolution where I really believe that the problem with the environmental communities: a, we just talk to each other; yep. uh, b, you have super-rich corporations that depend on non-stop fundraising and this insatiable need for cash to keep doing the good work they're doing. But it's tiny; it's a yep. small, small group of people that are worth billions of dollars. And so I believed, and that was part of changing the mission that it needed to go on, and I still believe it needs to go on at the community level to be authentic, whether it's voter registration or whether it's citizen science. Whatever it is, environmental action, it has to be tied as a first step, absolutely, to community groups. And they're starving for money. Yeah. And some of them you know, are not 100% great. Some of them don't have the kind of corporate structures that make them, make donors comfortable. Uh, but we've been in the business of giving money to community groups for a long, long time. And we know, because we're in 192 countries, yes, it gets screwed up once in a while. For the most part, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. We have to be tough um, when we're giving away our money. But we always tie it, performance standards. But honestly, it's so rare that they don't rise to the occasion. And if you have community engagement, then you're going to have success. And so that's our our entire um Point of view, and so we really believe that that's the way to go, not continue to build a handful of big groups, even though they do good work mm-hmm. because we haven't built a broad enough movement and that's the problem now it's not that we don't have great lawyers and great legislators and great regulators in both the environmental community and in the science community. So we don't have anybody behind us. Yeah. So you've got to put your money where your mouth is and invest in community groups, and that's what we do.
1: No, that's fantastic. You know, I had a similar conversation with somebody in the international development and humanitarian field.
2: I bet they feel the same way.
1: They feel the same way because they, they know that most owners are afraid of making a mistake because it's going to reflect badly on them. But they also know that all the great work is being done by these local groups, but they can't get money because they don't have a five-year history or whatever the case may be. But you have to be afraid to make a mistake because most of them are doing the kind of work that nobody else is doing and getting incredible results. Well, let me close with this, Kathleen. What do you hope will come out of the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, which is quite unlike anything that has happened in the previous 49?
2: Well, I think— First of all, we didn't talk about this, but we are—we have decided, and we're being led, being led by the youth groups that mm-hmm. are going to be striking in New York in a couple of days, we really believe that there has to be a day of civic action on Earth Day, which is a Wednesday, April 22nd. And so we are slowly but surely putting together a campaign called Earth Rise, which we hope will bring out millions of people the way Dennis and Gaylord did in 1970, and at least demonstrate to global leaders that there's more than a couple hundred thousand people behind them, that this is broad, diverse, everywhere. And so our big goal for 2020 is to, yes, we're in love with Earth Challenge. We have something called the Great Global Cleanup. We hope to have 100 million people doing cleanups, all those stepping stones. But in the end of the day, two things matter, demonstrating and voting. And both of those things are key to Earth Day 2020 and what we'll be focusing on.
1: Well, Kathleen Rogers, the president and CEO of Earth of the Earth Day Network, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. What do you want people to do today and what do they need to do to get ready for April 22 of uh, 2020?
2: Volunteer, sign up, register to vote, register others. And get ready for April 22nd.
1: Thanks, Kathleen. It was great to have you on the program.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: I'll be back with more of the business of giving right after this.
5: Before you give to charity, go to CharityNavigator.org. Charity Navigator provides free ratings of thousands of America's largest charities, helping you get the most out of your charitable dollar. CharityNavigator.org, your guide to intelligent giving. If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from the Business of Giving, you can find them at denverfrederick.wordpress.com. And now back to the show on AM 970, The Answer. Today worldwide,
1: 570 million children live in extreme poverty. Child Fund International helps many of these children to have the capacity to improve their lives and the opportunity to bring lasting change to their communities. But an awful lot has to go into making that happen, from generating the needed revenues to the actual work on the ground. And here to explain it all to us, it's a pleasure to have Ann Lynham Goddard, the President and CEO of Child Fund International. Good evening, Ann, and welcome to the Business of Giving.
3: Good evening, Denver. Very happy to be here.
1: Child Fund International, as it would ultimately become, started in 1938 in China. What was going on there that led to its formation?
3: The world's changed a lot since those days. Back then, China had just uh, come out of the second Sino-Japanese war, mm. and the condition for children was terrible. Um, and it was on the news a lot in the US. And, our, and the, China had lost. And our uh, founder, Calvin Clark, he was coming home on a train, and he ran into a friend. And they started talking about the terrible images that they had seen on, on the news about children in China. And his friend challenged him. He said, you've you've started uh, nonprofits for other purposes. I think you should do something to start and help children in China. Hmm. I think Americans would care about that. And he did.
1: Wow. And then where did it go from there?
3: We were in China to 1950. And some people called the communists came in then and asked us to leave. Yeah. So we moved out, moved um, to Hong Kong at that point, and started up orphanages. Back then, in the early days of child fund, we worked in orphanages. And we spread throughout Asia um, mm-hmm. within the 50s. We moved to a lot of countries. we were in South Korea, um, other countries in Asia. And uh, that was kind of our hub. And then over the years, we now work all over the world.
1: Right. And are like 30 countries or whatever the case might be. Correct. You know, before we get into what the organization does, let's discuss some of the challenges that young people face today, children.
3: Mm-hmm. You've
1: done a lot of research around this and listened deeply to what they had to say. And you recognize that the experience of poverty for a child is mm. different than it is for an adult. What are some of those differences? Yeah,
3: we did a deep study a few years ago, several years ago now. And while adults, uh, listening to kids in mm-hmm. all countries that we work in, and as adults might define poverty as not having things, yeah. children don't. They, it's part of that. Mm-hmm. But they also see issues regarding being vulnerable. In different ways, they could be because their their gender or their minority in the country, or their religious background in the country, that they're more vulnerable to economic things, um, environmental issues, etc. And they're excluded, that they don't get they don't get to be part of something that gives them opportunity. So children now define it in ways of not having goods, but also uh, being deprived, excluded, and vulnerable. So that concept of deprivation, exclusion, and vulnerability really. Um, frame how we work, how we identify the kids we work with, and how we work with them.
1: Yeah. So it's social and emotional.
3: Yes, yeah. very much so.
1: Yeah. And so,
3: kind of political, too, because sure. of not having power. Children mm-hmm. have no power, but sometimes the minority group that they're in have no power either.
1: Well, picking up on that, how does that inform the way you work with these children and direct your services towards them?
3: Okay. So overall, our framework is, our goal is to help kids grow up to be healthy, educated, capable, skilled, meaning skilled, mm-hmm. and safe. So that's an overarching framework. But it, because of the issues of exclusion and vulnerability, it's not just the child we're looking at. We're looking at having, uh, working towards having families and communities support children. We're looking at the regional and national governments they work in supporting children, having laws and, and uh, policies that will protect and promote the worth and rights of children. And we're looking globally that the world is prioritizing children in their need. So you can't just solve the problem of one child. You have to look at their greater um, ec- ecosystem that they live in because it's not just the deprivation. Ex- the, it's the exclusion and vulnerability that's often influenced by powers outside of them.
1: Yeah, all those wraparounds really yep. are, are, are so important. You know, another big issue, and you just uh, alluded to it, is um, violence and neglect mm. now about 36% of the global population is children. How Mm. many of them experience it?
3: It's estimated a billion children a year. A billion children a year, I'm going to repeat that because that's a huge number, experience some kind of violence every year. And when we realized that, that's when we really started ramping up our, our programs on protection and ending violence against children. We saw that the great advances, Child Fund and many other organizations, have made in helping kids live healthier lives and getting kids into school and to quality education all those advances are being undermined by the violence in kids lives mm. if parents are violent in the home that's going to affect the health and welfare of a child if teachers and there are teachers themselves or other things actors in the school are having an environment where kids feel bullied or or abused in some way, the kids aren't going to go to school, even if the schools are there. You're right. So we really have enhanced in the last couple of years our efforts in really coming up, uh, really focusing on the issue of ending extreme violence against things kids. And from, from those two examples I gave you, but all the way to looking at things of child labor, early child marriage child trafficking, all those outside influences are influencing yeah. kids and their lives.
1: So there's a difference, too, I, get, I would imagine, in the kinds of violence that boys experience mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. compared to girls.
3: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> boys, it's often issues of labor, yeah. child labor. It could also be issues of being recruited into armed conflict. though That happens to girls, too. Girls, it's a lot of sexual um, harassment, sexual abuse at an early age. So they're both exposed to violence, and so we have to address both of those issues separately. But most importantly, um to address them because as I said they're undermining the ability of kids to grow to be healthy educated and contributing uh, adults in their communities mm-hmm.
1: you know despite what you just said about the ecosystem and all the work you do there you are really a people-centered organization Very and focus so. at uh, at the child at the center of it and you have broken that down into three age groups so let's talk about each starting with zero to five what's your work there
3: yeah our focus there is very much on health of very young children, but also on re- what we call responsive parenting, right? The parent is the most important person in a child's life, particularly in those early years. Mm-hmm. So we're looking in, in that the example I gave earlier about um, violence in the home. We're working with very much on a model that's teaching parents how to be parents for their children, how to develop so much has come out in recent years about the development of the brain in those first five years but particularly the first three years mm-hmm. so how can a parent help stimulate that brain development through play
6: mm-hmm.
3: with children and through interaction with children yeah, talking we, to them. we just signed a great agreement with the lego foundation that's going to advance that work now in uh, central america they're very much interested in play and how its impact on the child uh, and the growth and development of a child i like to say play is the work of a child mm-hmm. so in those early five years we're trying to get play happening with, with, with parents to really stimulate the growth of a child.
1: That's great. The CEO of the Lego Foundation is going to be on the show later this month.
3: Oh, he's a wonderful guy. I just I, met him. Really nice guy. I
1: hope he is. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> the, the next cohort are okay. children between the ages of 6 and 14. Right. What's your primary objective there?
3: Education, mm-hmm. right? Those are the years that kids should be in school. For years, Child Fund and many other organizations worked on uh, um, access to education, right, that there were schools there and kids could get there, and that's still a problem in some places we work in, but much bigger issue is the quality of what's happening in the classroom and the, and that the school itself is what we call a child-friendly place The kids will want to come to the school. So a lot of focus on education.
1: Mm-hmm. And finally, you seek to see that youth uh, are skilled mm-hmm. and involved in that 15- to 24-year-old range. How yeah. do you go about that? Yeah,
3: so that's a lot of the soft skills we call the preparing kids for life leadership skills, sexual reproductive health education for those kids, helping kids become leaders in their communities. So we do a lot of different things, helping them um, if, they, if they're if they capable to go on to higher education as well. A lot of our children in our programs actually go on to technical schools or universities, et cetera. But really to have those soft skills and the confidence that they can uh, achieve their dreams in life.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, And a central uh, form of philanthropy that Child Fund relies upon to Mm -hmm. support these programs is child sponsorship. How Mm -hmm. does that work?
3: Uh, It's a wonderful um, way to support the development of a child. We match a child in need that's enrolled in our country's programs to a sponsor who wants to help them. They establish a one-to-one relationship. They're free to write back and forth, and we facilitate that. The sponsor then contributes a certain amount of money per month for that child, and those funds then are pooled at the community level Mm -hmm. to run the programs that the children participate in. Most sponsors, and we welcome sponsors any time to come visit our programs overseas, and many do because Americans now are traveling so much more. They might be on vacation someplace. Mm -hmm. They'll contact us in advance, and they can meet the child. When they go there, they realize that they're helping that one child, but even more so they're helping other children in the community because the programs that are run, many children participate in. If you're helping improve the education quality in a classroom, you can't just focus on one child, right? The teachers benefiting their improved skills are benefiting all the kids in the classroom. So um, so the pool, uh, there's a one-to-one relationship. Some sponsors write, uh, send additional financial gifts to the child, which just goes to the child and is not shared. Mm-hmm. But the basic sponsorship amount they give each year, each month, is pooled to run the programs that children participate in.
1: You know, in addition to providing the resources to make all this happen, what else do you think is at the heart of uh, this uh the importance of this kind of relationship okay. uh, through child sponsorship?
3: I would say two things. One is studies have been done that have compared, for example, child sponsorship programs to say, cash um, cash incentives and other programs like cash incentives for children to go to school. So they looked at the cost and benefit of both of those. You know, In both cases, you get kids staying longer in education, and does one have a better impact than the other? And sponsorship, there was evidence that supported the fact that what sponsorship does, in addition to getting the child in the school, sponsorship, because of that relationship of one person here and wanting to help that person over there, the child... Um, has a dream, uh-huh. and has an, um, a goal to accomplish more in life. So it's that caring part of someone helping them it lifts their aspirations of what they want to do in life. It allows them first to have the dreams and then helps them to achieve them. So that's one thing that really, I think, uh, distinguishes that uh, sponsorship. But the other thing I like to talk about is a bigger benefit right now for the world. There's a connection now going on between one child and one sponsor. And now, all of a sudden, those those two people um, from two different countries who maybe never have a chance to see each other, mm-hmm. though some sponsors do, all of a sudden care about someone in another country. They yeah. have a personal relationship. I feel like sponsorship is building little threads of peace around the world. That the other is no longer a stranger. The other from another country is no longer a stranger. And that goes both ways. And I think in today's world, that is so important.
1: Yeah, we do need some to have some, some kind of attachment to something. It's a long distance mentor mentee relationship mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in, in mm-hmm. a lot of respects. How do you go out and market these child mm-hmm. sponsorships, promote them, and what does your typical donor look like?
3: Uh, um, we a- acquire new supporters in many ways. One is through our website. But um, a big part of what we're doing now is through music concerts. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, um, get rela- we establish relationships with different groups, different bands, and they go on tour. And they learn about Child Fund. And we, some of them come over and visit our programs in our, in our countries. And they make an appeal during their performance. And we have volunteers in the back of the room. And people go back and learn more about our programs. They see they can pick an individual child. There'll be a package there with the story about the child. And they um, decide then and there, and they sign up to be a sponsor. We do a lot of uh, program music um, performances. that are very family-oriented. I've gone to see some of them myself. So you'll see parents and kids in the audience. So it really connects with the family, that this family can help this kid in another country.
6: Who have you
1: seen? Or give me an example of a band or two. Uh, Not that oh, I would know.
3: Oh, you're going to – uh, the Newsboys. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, they're they're a big band that we work with. <laughs> so, and we've had, we had a uh, Beatles wannabe um, a band a couple of years ago, and they were pretty good too. Oh, that's
1: cool. You know, a key aspect of your model is to work with local partners mm. in those 30 mm-hmm. countries. Uh, what do you look for in a partner? What are your expectations of them? And what are their expectations of you?
3: Yeah. Uh, the, th- the main thing we look for is that they, like us, have uh, passion and commitment to making things better for their kids in their community. And they want to do some work with us in partnership with us to make that happen. Um, Some of the, and that they have, they're registered as a local organization, so they're governed by local national law. Mm -hmm. They're very much grassroots organizations. Parents are often on the board of those organizations. That they have systems, and we help them develop them too, but they have systems to uh, both um, be able to deliver programs for kids, but also be able to administer the funding, report on the funding, uh, be able to facilitate the letter writing back and forth between the child and the sponsor. Mm Uh, and so we're not direct implementers. We're really, uh, in some ways, a donor to the local partner, the local community-based organization. And we feel this is a better way to do it because oh, no it's, about it. it's building capacity in the country, there's sustainability. Some of them become are very strong, and they get funding from other places as well, which brings additional resources to help the kids in their community.
1: Do you have any operations here in the United States?
3: Yes, we do. Oh. Thank you for asking. <laughs> uh, we've been working in Mississippi for a while in a, a low income income, uh, African-American community. And our programs there is really on youth and youth leadership. We have a lo- great local partner there. And uh, those children, a lot of activities going on to develop um, the leadership capacity of these children. And a great example that, that we um, worked with, uh, we collaborated with a partner there, was a couple years ago, we have an advocacy day in D.C., once a year, the last several years, and we brought the youth from Mississippi up. This was a learning experience for them. Sometimes some of them had never been outside their state before. Mm -hmm. We brought them up to DC. We educated them on some of the issues that are facing children worldwide, and they advocated on those issues. But they also brought their own issue to the table, which was funding for after-school programs. It was a great opportunity for them Um, To really look at, learn about democracy, but also learn that they can be leaders in their community, impacting issues bigger than themselves. Oh,
1: that's great. And advocacy is becoming uh, more important for child fund. You also advocate, uh, uh, have (laughs) advocacy. I can't find that word. So... um, advocacy has become more important to child fund over the years and you have advocacy initiatives not just here in this country but around the world correct
3: yeah yeah. because we're trying to get uh, environments for children that are conducive for them to grow up to be healthy and educated right so for example I was in Sri Lanka a couple about a year ago where the children there are very concerned about issues of bullying in this in the classroom Mm. so uh, we educated them about the issue they took it and ran with it we had a uh, we brought in youth from around the country, and they had an advocacy day when senior government officials came to hear from the children. They came out with their own ten-point plan of why how they thought things could be improved in the classroom for them. And the government minister sat the whole program right next to me and listened to the kids. Fantastic! It was
1: great. Yeah, it sure is. The importance of measuring impact, uh, both as a means of getting better and also trying to show the efficacy of your approach to funders has never been more important. How do you go about doing that? Yeah.
3: We have really focused on the last eight years about improving our monitoring and evaluation system both to measure what's happening today, but the longer-term impact on kids. Mm-hmm. So we can produce uh, yearly reports about how our children are our programs, and are they in school, are they having health problems, et cetera. But more importantly, to your point, impact takes longer time yep. to develop. And uh, now every other year, we pull together all the data, our impact data, to see how, what's the impact on children and produce that in a report. It's on our website, it's also given to our donors. Um, and we try to share what's gone well, But wasn't has what hasn't gone so well, right? And we put out the best data that we have to prove to support both. And we try to very much take it as a learning opportunity for us that nothing is ever perfect, and we have to constantly improve. So, what can we learn also from the data? Yeah,
1: and you try to be as transparent as you possibly Possibly. can about it because then people trust you that you're not hiding anything. In addition to child sponsorship. What are your other sources of revenue and maybe some of your corporate partners?
3: Yeah. Uh, We like – we have – in addition to sponsors, we have major donors that support our work. Sometimes there are former sponsors, but sometimes they're not actually. It's hard to turn a sponsor into a major donor. (laughs) We give a million-dollar experience for $35 a month as a sponsor. Uh It's interesting. But, but we have um, a, a nice base of people who are really committed to certain programs, certain activities, and we have our major gifts team for that. We've also diversified into grants, and both from the U.S. government, um, multilateral institutions, other governments around the world, but also corporate partners. Uh, Procter & Gamble is a great partner with us. Um, around inter- water? Around water. I was mm. going to say their interest is in water. As I said, we just signed a great agreement with the Lego Foundation, uh, focusing on responsive uh, parenting and bringing play into the work for, uh, The work mm-hmm. um, So we have a variety of partnerships in different Way, we have a wonderful partnership With Simply Southern, really Wonderful woman and her husband Who run the company They're an apparel company, company right? Yes, yeah. yes, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, through their own personal experiences um, from the past, they're very committed to children's issues in, in developing countries around the world. They give us a wonderful unrestricted gift every year, which I'm extremely grateful for, yeah. and it really allows us to do great things with kids. That's
1: great, and you also do some work with Caterpillar Foundation in Indonesia, I believe.
3: Yes, yes, Caterpillar um, has been a great partner. We started working with them in India, now we're working with them in Indonesia. Uh, they've been a great partner to work with.
1: Describe the workplace culture at Child Fund International, Mm -hmm. the aspects of it that you think are truly exceptional, and maybe one or two things you're working on.
3: Yeah. Um, I think we are a very humble organization. I think you feel that in the culture of the organization. Um, We're also not, I would say, informal. Mm -hmm. We have some very formal systems in terms of how we plan and how uh, we obviously our finance systems and all that, but within an informal culture. Um, We're very much uh, an organization, I think this would make sense, that embraces diversity. We don't even think of that as a separate initiative. You know, we have about 1,000 employees around the world and 99.9 percent, well, most are nationals of their country. Mm -hmm. And if you work in 24 different countries, you're going to have a big uh, influx, you're going to have a big diverse workforce. Um, we, um, also are embracing more, um, we're being concerned about our environment and concerned about the stress of employees life. So we're taking much more working virtually as well as part of our culture That's of that right. organization. Yeah. So we have people, a lot of people working from home or working for different cultures. Um, I think it's hard to ask the CEO what the culture of an organization is. I think it's best to ask the employees we have, uh, what it is. I th- when I hear what they say, they say it's a place that has a lot of passionate people in it that are really committed to mm-hmm. doing something for uh, making the life better for kids, and will go the extra mile to make that happen. And that makes me really proud. Yeah. What I like to say to new employees when they come on, I I say that um, I hope during you know during their lifespan of their career that it that it turns I hope it turns out that Child Fund turns out to be the peak of their career that they really feel like they had the opportunity to m- deliver the best what they could do. Mm-hmm. I think it's an organization that welcomes you into your leadership space and says, here, take it, run with it. You don't have to fight for your space. We welcome people in and say, we need you. We're leanly um, uh, staffed up. You know, We need every person and what their job is. So here, take it and run with it. We'll help you be yeah. successful.
1: Yeah. Are there any special challenges you find in leading a legacy organization? You're over 80 years old, so how do you uh, remain nimble and cutting edge and all those other things?
3: I like to say the organization is over 80 years old, not me. <laughs> Just to make that perfectly clear.
1: If those th- pronouns correct.
3: I think it's a very hard. I think it's a much easier, this is my opinion, yeah. to start an organization from scratch than to look at an 80-year-old organization and change it.
1: I would
6: agree.
3: And so we do have a lot of legacy things. And some legacy things are good and for good purpose, but some we need to change. So we really embrace in our current strategy the issue of innovation. Mm-hmm. So we've attacked in a lot of different ways. we put in a, an innovation fund to look at new products and new services that we could be offering our supporters and our, the kids that we work with. We've done a great, um, uh, it's our staff engagement program called MAGIC that brings meaning and autonomy into the workforce and gives people space because the biggest thing that stops autonomy is people feel they don't have the support internally to try something new. Right. So that's what we're trying to do, give that space. But it's really hard to change a culture. Organization is a living, breathing thing. Right. And you can't make it something that it isn't. You have to kind of nurture it along to the next phase. Mm -hmm. That's my experience.
1: Well, I I think your experience is right on the money. Mm -hmm. Let me close with this, Anne. Child Fund touches the lives of millions of children every year. Tell us a story of one.
3: Um, I think if you want to see the impact of, of Child Fund, you talk about the child that was in our program years ago and where they are today. I was in Kenya a few years ago, a place that I know well. I was a Peace Corps volunteer there many years ago. And I'm driving down the road with our Kenyan staff. And all of a sudden, we got pulled over by the police. And I'm thinking, I know that we didn't, weren't breaking any law. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, what is this man trying to do? And so the policeman and the our driver was having this conversation in Swahili. And I'm understanding a little bit because I remember the language. And all of a sudden, the driver jumps out of the car and he and the policeman start hugging each other. I said, this is not your normal traffic stop. <laughs> it turns out the policeman, he was a sponsored child in our program many years ago. He saw the name of our organization on the outside of our vehicle. He didn't stop to give us a ticket. He stopped to thank us. He said he was a very poor kid growing up. He never would have finished school if it wasn't for his sponsors and the support of his sponsored. He remembered the name of his sponsored family that supported him from the U.S. Afterwards, he sent me a photo of him and his wife and two little kids. And in that photo, it caps, encapsulated what Child Fund is all about, ending poverty in a generation. And with him, we did it.
1: That will get you up every morning, won't it? Well, Anne Lynham Goodard, the president and CEO of Child Fund International, thanks so much for being here this evening. Where can listeners learn more about sponsoring a child and more about the work that you do?
3: On our website, childfund.org. Please come and learn more about the contribution you can make to making the world a better place for kids.
1: Well, thanks, Ann. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show.
3: Thank you, Denver. And
1: that is this week's show. Thanks for listening. Have a great week and do return next Sunday evening for The Business of Giving.
5: The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of The Business of Giving